Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, brother? Hey, I'm doing really well. Very good, very good. Have an exciting week. Anything exciting happen? Yeah, a lot of stuff. I've just been learning and learning. I like learning. Of course. That's Derek's To thing. be learned is good. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Quoting scriptures from the Confolium lesson already. <laughs> oh, Derek, I love it, man. I love it. And also, we got this. Uh, I'm super excited about the uh, Black LDS Legacy Conference coming up yeah. this weekend as well. It uh, turns out the authors of Book of Mormon for the least of these, both of them are going to be there. So uh, on the off chance either one of them listen to this podcast, uh, I'm bringing my book, and I want you all both to sign it. So. Me too. Yeah, just, just be ready for that. Whatever lunch break we get, I'm hunting y'all down. Y'all signing my book. That is all. Um, but anyway, with that, let's go ahead and jump right into the news. Uh, Derek, I believe you wanted to say something briefly about uh, Romney this week. What <laughs> Can you just like give us a brief recap for those of us who have been under a rock? Just what happened this week with Romney? Yes, so... Um Trump was impeached and his trial was in the Senate and he was acquitted on both count uh, on both of the charges. However, Romney joined the Democrats in voting to convict Trump on the first uh, the abuse of power charge, which I think is significant because in a number of ways it deprives um, it really exposes the Republican majority in the Senate of what they're really up to because they didn't want to have witnesses, they didn't want to have evidence, they didn't want to have anything, they just wanted to acquit and to me that doesn't that actually deprives Trump from a significant acquittal because it, it doesn't seem like a fair trial it doesn't seem like they actually got the stuff out there and dealt with it which is going to make them look bad in the end mm. now Romney I think showed a measure of courage and a measure of integrity that none of the other Republicans did because now it looks like now that basically proves that the Republicans were just voting based on party loyalties and not on the merits because here you have one that said look I'm going against my party to do this this is going to cost me a lot socially and politically but it's the right thing which really um, gives weight to now we have a bipartisan vote to convict Trump, mm. which obviously didn't succeed. Right. But at least you can say that that's where the evidence lies, and it was so strong that, that even Romney was, abil- was able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was pretty... I, I really like what he... Um, I mean, I didn't watch the whole interview, but he like straight-up quoted a primary song yep. and talking about why he was able to do what he did in the face of so much opposition and so much social cost and political cost. He just said, do what is right. Let the consequence follow. And a key part of this was in the senators were jurors who took an impartial, I mean, they took an oath to be, to render impartial justice, Mm -hmm. an oath before God. And obviously in the temple, we know things about oaths before God. Right. So Romney took that seriously and literally, um, he had to do what was right, even though that's not what he wanted to do. That's what he promised to do, and so he did it. Do you happen to know how uh, Utah Mormons or Mormons in general tend to be taking this? Um, I'm guessing it divides on how they were already divided, the ones that were pro-Trump before, which I don't understand why there's any Mormons that are pro-Trump. Um, 
the ones that were pro-Trump before hate Romney and think he's a rhino, a Republican in name only, and mm-hmm. want to n- not reelect him and all sorts of stuff. And then the Mormons who are anti-Trump are really proud of Romney. Mm-hmm. Not that Romney's done everything right, but right, right. this is this is where it gets real. This is probably the most important defining event of his life. Mm-hmm. We will history books in in fifty years will probably talk about this. Yeah, that's. And that's pretty significant. I can't wait to see how history tells this particular story and future and further what the future of Mitt Romney's political career is going to be. That's going to be a really interesting thing to play out. So, yeah, man. In the same realm. As wait, a, I want to say one more thing oh yeah, about, go ahead. about this. Yeah. And just a brief detour. You know, sometimes I think of my to think to myself, why are these uh, why are all these Mormons? supporting Trump, who is the most anti-Christian, anti-Mormon, anti-everything. Like, all of our values, like, that's, I just don't get it. And to me, it should be obvious that that you, but then I think to myself, if the Latter-day Saints of Germany in the 1930s and 40s, you know, they didn't condemn Hitler. A lot of them supported Hitler. A lot of them learned to coexist with Hitler. There was no big, I mean, there were a few handful exceptions of, of resistance among Latter-day Saints in Germany. But sadly, a lot of them went on with it and thought, oh, this is really good. And this is back when Mormonism was still officially racist. Mm-hmm. Now it's, now it's it's still racist. It's just not supposed to be It's not anymore. officially racist yeah. anymore. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be anymore. Uh, officially but but anyway but this is back when a lot of the values uh, they were able to graft themselves onto Hitler and find things that he was doing that appealed to them like like many Christians in Germany like uh, Ger- Hitler swept a lot of these people up into, and then there, of course there's anti-semitism uh, but I think to myself if we couldn't have had a strong resistance and condemnation of the real Hitler, mm-hmm. how are we going to have a strong resistance of Trump among our people? Like, we can't even get the easy questions right when it, when stuff is on the line. And so how, are, how, are, how am I supposed to expect all these Mormons are going to just automatically know Hitler? Uh, oops, <laughs> that's bad. I, I meant to say <laughs> Trump and I said Hitler. Um, but yeah. It, and part of part of the problem in Germany was a lot of the saints in Germany just fell back on the twelfth article of faith as an excuse. We believe mm. in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in honor, honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. And they're like, "Well, they're in charge. We gotta, we gotta sustain them." I'm like, "No." Mm-hmm. And all a lot of this research was spawned by one re, uh, one historian whose son asked him. Dad, what color triangles did the Mormons wear in the concentration camps? Hmm. And the answer is none because there there were no triangles. They had triangles for the queer people. They had tri- they had two triangles overlapped to make the yellow star of David. They had triangles for the communists and uh, political uh, enemies. They had uh, triangles for the Jehovah's Witnesses. But, you know, Mormons love to be persecuted. Why couldn't we mm. get on board with being persecuted? Like, that's the one time where it, you want to you wanna be persecuted is mm. it, when, in the face of such great evil, resist to the point where you get in trouble. 
But sadly, we didn't do that in Germany. And so all of these Mormons who think they're the best things ever, like we're whatever, like, no, we're not. Like so many of us follow Trump. Mm -hmm. Not me, but I was just really frustrated with that this week that so many Mormons adore Trump. And he's he's a living example of everything that Jesus condemned. Mm. So that's I'm done with that. No, it's all good. It's all good. Thank you for sharing, Derek. Really appreciate it. Um, in that same vein, I do want to take a moment to talk about another story that happened just a few days ago. There was an event at uh, BYU, a black immigration, a black immigrant panel. It was, uh, it was an event I assume they were having because of uh, Black History Month. And guys, it's, uh, it, it, it's, the, it's day eight of Black History Month right now, and I already just cannot like PETA tried co-opting the NFL protests, a career racist just got awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in front of a 100-year-old Tuskegee Airman. And now BYU, big surprise, has racism happening at an event that is centering black people. So this is what happened. For Black History Month, BYU hosted an event featuring a panel of black immigrants, and all of them were women. There was a Q&A via Slido. It's an app where people can post anonymous questions to a queue for the moderator to read, and all the participants can see and upvote them. The idea is that the most popular questions um, slide to the top of the queue, and they get asked first. That's the whole point of the app Slido. But anyway, there were some uh, super problematic questions that rolled in, which you can read on our Facebook page if you haven't already. One question reads, why do we celebrate black history? Why not Mexican history or white history? Another question read, why do we act like black people don't get treated well? And another question, or sorry, there are also white, Mexican, Chinese, and other races not getting treated well. Another question, why do African Americans hate police? If they would obey the law and do what they said, we wouldn't have this problem, close quote. And another one, what is the percentage of African Americans on food stamps? And then there's my personal favorite. Why are there no white people on the stage? Close quote. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, sorry, bro. Like, I, I don't know where to begin with all of this. I, I really do not know where to begin with it. Just. And all these came from BYU students. Presumably BYU students. Okay. Like this was an event at BYU. Chances are they like the chances are very high that all these questions came from BYU students because I don't know why non-BYU students would be present at this event. It is a BYU event. It was advertised on BYU's campus and it was primarily advertised by BYU students. The only reason I heard about it prior to the event is because BYU students were promoting it. Like BYU actually, when they were responding to this particular event and the happenings at it, they were like, well, we can't verify that the people who commented were BYU students, but this fits the pattern. Like, yeah, like uh, people of color, particularly black folks, they have been experiencing racism at BYU for literally decades. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We've been complaining about this stuff for literally decades. So the fact that this happened is not exactly off brand for BYU. I'm not so much concerned that this happened so much as I'm concerned with the fact that there is a pattern of racist incidents bred from ignorance, very much like this one, keep happening at BYU. Now, I understand, BYU, that you can't prevent racists from getting into your school. Like, you can't stop every racist from going to school there. But you can definitely change the culture. You can make it at least so that racists are scared to make themselves known on BYU campus. Well, they were anonymous. That's why they, uh, that's when it came out, right? 
The point is, there is a culture of racial ignorance at BYU, and it's dangerous, and BYU's not doing enough to address it. No one spoke up for these women in real time at all. Just this past year, there's been an incident of Confederate flags being hung up on, like, in-campus dorm windows. A white student said the N-word in a class with a black person in it, and no one spoke up. Several years ago, when I was a student, I was subjected to almost the exact same experience. Again, no one spoke up. Presently, if the school has any black faculty, they're all adjunct, and they definitely number in the low single digits. The one black faculty member I knew who happened to be teaching a class on race had to kick students out of her class because white students kept disrupting it with their discomfort. At a predominantly white school, under the umbrella of a predominantly white church with a troubled racial past where black students still elect to attend, in spite of all that, BYU owes black students a safer environment. Address racism in real time. Teach anti-racism in religion classes as a gospel principle. Get the black intelligentsia in our forums and devotionals. I don't have a lot of answers right now, but what's clear is that BYU definitely needs to do more. Like, this isn't just racism happening. This is straight-up ignorance. Like, how are you going to go to an event about the black immigration experience and then ask a question like, how many African-Americans are on food stamps? Like, not relevant at all. Not right. relevant at all. Black immigrants are not African-Americans. Like, there's a distinction to be made there. African-Americans are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Black immigrants are no more than a generation removed. Like, you can't ask that question. You can't ask questions further. Like, look, look at this. Like, all these questions have nothing to do with the black immigrant experience. This is an example of white people trying to center themselves in conversations or change the conversation or deflect from the conversation. This is a common tactic of white supremacy to not listen to our narratives, to not listen to our dialogues and to not have the conversations that we want to have. If we made those topics the topic of conversation, then we talk about them. But there's a reason we don't talk about this stuff on a regular basis. All of it is emotionally exhausting to explain to a people who can ultimately disregard facts in the face of information that makes them uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about that once we get to the get to the come follow me again. But it's one of the many reasons we don't have this stuff. Secondly, all of these questions are e easily Googleable, and it's it's the year 2020. If you don't know the answers to these questions by now, then you've made a choice to simply not figure out why black people have a strenuous relationship with law enforcement, to not figure out why the disparities in every institution of American life would create some kind of disparity in how food stamps or other government assistance benefits are distributed among the races. It, it, it would make sense of why we have a Black History Month. And you would also know that there is a... Like, first of all, Mexican is not even an ethnicity. It's a nationality. Like, we got to get those definitions straight. But if you had any kind of intelligence, you would know that there actually is a 30-day period for Lat to celebrate Latin American heritage. There's the same to celebrate uh, Eastern cultures as well as Polynesian cultures. Like, you being ignorant doesn't make those things not exist. You know what I'm saying? Just there's so many layers of ignorance here that need to be cut through yeah. in order for us to properly address the the deep the deeply rooted white supremacy that is prevalent at BYU that they still have not significantly addressed what bugged me well there's that but i did you see this tweet that the BYU people tweeted yeah i saw this, the tweet like the the, the I thing saw the that tweet. wasn't a, an apology it wasn't it was like, an apology like, at like all we condemn racism no you need to say you need to take responsibility 
and say what happened and say why this isn't going to happen again and say yes. that you were wrong and have an actual apology. Have a specific plan of action. That is what we need. Like this kind of stuff has been happening at BYU long enough to where we can reasonably expect that you are taking steps to prevent racist incidents like this from happening in the future. Again, like I said, you can't prevent racists from going to your school, but you can create the kind of culture that makes them scared to make themselves known. I want to know what you are doing to make that happen. BYU yeah. has to make that happen. I imagine one thing that they could have done at this event was was have the moderator vet everything before it went out for uh, the people to vote on, and right. then then those results, then you you'd have to moderate uh, again and choose which ones you're gonna. But right. but just have someone pre-approve it before it goes out to everyone. That's a big, obvious step because look, people of you know black people in the audience or on on the panel don't need to be traumatized with all that. Right. Right. Um, and I think. Here's my other problem is that when these racist incidents happen at BYU or in the church, I see a lot of black people complaining. I don't see a lot of white people making noise about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we as white people need to be upstanders. We need to amplify the voices, but we also need to get out there and disrupt this because right. it shouldn't the burden shouldn't be all on black folks and it and uh, just based on the numbers, there aren't enough black folks to have uh, the voice that if all the white people did the right thing and said the right thing, and then, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm going with this is is white people need to step up and, and be angry and, and make make a deal about this. Yeah. And, you know, they're sadly due to, for all the wrong reasons, some people will listen to me who won't listen to you. Right. Because right. I'm white. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not fair, but I can use that privilege to amplify these voices and, and say that it's a problem because it's so easy for them to disregard a black person complaining about racism. They'll just say, oh, they're just black. They're complaining. But if I say it, then they're like, oh, he's saying it not because it's in his personal interest, but because there's something there maybe. Right. It disrupts white solidarity. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. So that's, I wish... Uh, I, I probably should have done more myself. I don't know what to do. But part of part of what I'm worried about is getting ahead of black people um, or or speaking over them or saying the wrong thing. Because, you know, here we white people, we don't really enjoy conversations about racism. I have to say myself, I don't, even though I ha it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. All of this white fragility leads us to not know exactly the best thing to do. In my view is I think doing something is better than nothing. Absolutely. Even if it's not 100% per perfect or 100% woke, doing something that's like 99%, 95% along the way, that you can work with. Definitely. Just I being silent in the face, that's that's actually where we got Hitler, is people, good people of Germany were silent in the face of injustice. So yeah, I don't know what kind of organized effort has been in the works or whatever right now awareness is being like spread you know at least throughout the black lds community i know i've seen mad people sharing the story talking about these questions but as soon as we become aware of any kind of organized effort to get byu to properly acknowledge this and to move forward appropriately we will definitely let you guys know because we know half the you know most of you guys who listen to us on a regular basis are are already there but you know I know many of you are going to want to know what can you do to help or what can you do to, ad to you know, advance this particular cause. 
I don't know of any organized effort yet, but as soon as we hear of anything, you know, we'll let you know. But obviously, there's all the standard ways you can do. You can write, you can call, you can uh, send a tweet storm to BYU. Like, I don't know. Just doing something, as Derek said, is better than doing nothing. And uh, yeah, that, that that's all I want to say about that. You know, I just want to say I am... And this, I think, is really sincere and true. I am more upset by racism in the church than I am by homophobia. I think it's, maybe it's I just have different expectations because my view is there's no excuse anymore for racism. Like, Mm -hmm. we should have had this fixed in 1978. Well, we should have had it fixed before. Right. But on paper, and especially since the Race in the Priesthood essay of 2014, was it? Or There really, there's no basis for people to have any legitimacy mm-hmm. uh, in our doctrine or policy for racism anymore. Um, and that's not the case for homophobia. There's there's stuff that's the norm that they can appeal to. There's stu- that, that's still current, right? So it's not that I'm giving them an excuse, but I just have a little bit of an expectation that's like, basically what I'm saying is Latter-day Saints, I should expect them to be at least where the church is mm-hmm. officially on this issue. Not behind, right? I right. can't. Ex- I can't expect them to be. Ahe- I can't expect everyone to be ahead of the church, like where I need them to be on issues of homophobia and transphobia and queerphobia and feminism. But at least we should all be, at least where the church is officially, where it right. says it is. Right. And that's why I think I'm more outraged. I think there's there's less of a justification, and and there's just to me there's no justification for racism. It's like um. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel said it is maximum hatred for the minimum of reason. Mm. Like you've got this chemical in your skin that's supposed to be there. (laughs) And we are, people are dying because of it. Yeah. Because of how we treat people based on the color of their skin. It is maximum hate. I mean, maximum hate for the minimum of reason. And that is just completely mind boggling. And I don't know if I'm justifying, if I'm saying, well, there's more justification for homophobia, but I don't think that's what I'm saying. I just think that racism is just so obviously wrong and so right. obviously harmful. And right. we've had since the 60s, well, we have had for a long time, but but the LGBT movement is a little newer and, mm. and we haven't, I just don't think we're, there's, I think there's less of an excuse for people to be racist in 2020. Right, right. Especially in, you know, especially in the church. In the we church. have doctrine yeah. that outright condemns it. The church the church has said multiple times that, you know, racism is wrong. I just really feel like a lot of folks still don't know exactly what forms white supremacy takes. And we need to have more frank conversations about what it looks like, what kind of forms it takes, and uh, how we perpetuate it unknowingly. Because all these questions are yeah. clearly bred from either... A hostility, which is, you know, in and of itself wrong, but also mostly a profound ignorance of what white supremacy yeah, is and how it and looks. and I think there just needs to be enforcement and we need to be all on the same page with this. And that's, I hate to bring up the, um, the quote, mistake in the manual again, mm-hmm. but the narrative that's coming out is, oh, somehow that just, this old quote just slipped in there and now I just want you to pretend it's not there. That is not okay. First no. of all, it it didn't just slip in there. 
because imagine if a one of those old quotes about polygamy slipped in there. That mm-hmm. would never have been printed, and if it had been printed, every copy would have been burned before it got anywhere mm-hmm. because we have been very clear about how we are not polygamists anymore. Right. right. right? There is no way, because everyone from the president on down to everyone in all the bureaucracies are all on board with we got to not have anything to do with polygamy. Mm-hmm. That's everywhere in the culture. Right. And so there's no way that that, that would have even made one round of editing review mm-hmm. to have one of those old Brigham Young quotes about how polygamy, and of course I'm the last person to have multiple wives. I'm not even going to have one. <laughs> but we have a lot of old quotes that you could drag up that glorify polygamy and right. they will, I right. guarantee you, they will never be print because that's a priority for them. Right. Unfortunately. Racism is not. Black people and black lives are not a priority for our church and yeah. that, that should hurt everyone mm-hmm. um, to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And then the reaction of like, oh, just ignore, just, just pretend it's not there. Like we've fixed it online. Everything's good. No, that's not <laughs> Okay. <laughs> No, we got to do more to address that. We got to do more. Okay, I'm done now. Thank you, Derek. That was great. Thank you for sharing that. So I think that is a, unless you got any other news, I think this is a. Nope, that's it. All right, cool. Then we'll go ahead and segue into the come follow me. But before we do oh, wait, that. Did we talk about booty judge? Did we talk about booty judge? No, I don't think we no, talked we about didn't. booty judge. Okay. All right, let's say what we got to say about uh, well, Mayor Real Pete. quick, he did very, very well in the Iowa caucus. Um, he's essentially tied with Sanders. It looks like he's going to have essentially the same number of delegates to the national convention as Sanders from from Iowa. Um, Sanders appears to have more uh, more popular, you know, several thousand more than than Booty Judge. But now, I, now Booty Judge isn't my first choice. You know, I, I not so I, I'm not a, I'm not supporting him. But I think it's important to to note that for the first time ever, a game man has gotten this far in Iowa in a in, in something that's that's real real mm-hmm. you know I don't think he'll get the nomination but I think that's a step yeah yeah and I think for for young queer kids growing up seeing uh seeing mayor Pete out there and a lot of people acting like that that's the most normal thing in the world mm-hmm. really is is life-saving and validating. Yeah. What do you, what were your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, Mayor Pete is a millennial. Like he's only like what, 37, 38 or something yeah, like that, and yeah. he's a presidential candidate, which is yeah. pretty which is pretty cool. But, you know, I I don't want to discount I mean, I can only speak to you know, the progress that we have we as a country have made the fact because of the fact that we have a candidate who is, you know, openly gay and Christian, among other things. And, you know, is pretty much everything. He meets all standards of respectability. You know what I'm saying? That somebody is supposed to meet for Mm -hmm. a presidential office. You know what I'm saying? He's like, like, I hate to make this comparison, but he's almost like Obama Obama. in regards that he is somebody who represents a historically dispossessed minority group who checks every box of American respectability. And the challenge with that is both Obama and Pete had to moderate and tame some of what I think they should have said. Uh-huh. Just because um they had to in order to be respectful. I think in many ways a straight uh candidate like Warren or Bernie, they can say more 
bold things right. than than Mayor Pete because it won't be attributed to their orientation. Correct. They can they can actually be a little bit freer and have less risk and less personal um, threat to them yeah. because of straight privilege mm-hmm. that they have the privilege to be able to say what they want. Yeah. Um, and be more fully pro LGBT. I I don't think that that Mayor Pete is the best for the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. He's going to be good for rich gay white men, um, highly educated, you know, and he's doing some things along the way, but I don't think his vision is, is as expansive as it needs to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got to learn more about that myself, but, uh, that is definitely something worth, uh, but yeah, I think the, the, the point is not, not to, but to sort of, I think we can celebrate his success. Certainly. I think, I think it's, it's important to name that. Um, did you hear about that one voter who wanted to change her vote? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, why are homophobes voting in, voting in the Democratic primary anyway? Like, why? I don't know, bro. I don't know. And then two, I just how can you be a a mayor a supporter of Mayor Pete and not know that he's gay? That's like the first thing that it's like. Like me. she she said, I never heard nothing about that. It's like. <laughs> That's it's common knowledge. How did you not know? Kind of, that's kind of like people meeting me and not know I'm knowing I'm gay. That's For the real? first thing that people know. You about. know in three seconds. <laughs> like when I first met you, I knew in like three seconds. I was like, "All right, yeah." So openly gay actually, dude at this church event, cool. And that's not even the most important thing about me. Not the most interesting um, thing about you at all. Which is why when I'm described as being on this po- podcast as one of the as a gay, I mean, like, say something, Derek. Say something. The pr- the thing is, <laughs> if you brought that, gay people aren't what is the word fungible that you can just switch one in and switch the other out and it's all the same thing. Right. Like what I say is very different than what is it's very different than what many other gay people w- people would say. The things that I'm bringing to this aren't because I'm gay. It's more because mm-hmm. I'm I have a background as a biblical scholar. Correct. And I've thought about these things in a different way. That's actually the more exciting than the gay piece. Mm-hmm. I think, and more relevant to what I'm the the type of things that I say here. So, right, right. Um, because there are a lot of gay Mormons, and none of them are are doing or maybe could do some of the things that I'm particularly doing. Yeah. That is anyway, so that's statement. enough about Booty Judge. I hope he does well, but not too well. <laughs> Copy. All right. So with that, we'll move into the Come Follow Me. And before we do, we just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So Come Follow Me this week is Second Nephi chapters 6 through 10. We got a couple of Isaiah chapters here. Um, Jacob is doing most of the talking here, quoting some Isaiah, learning more about the atonement, the gathering of Israel. And 2 Nephi 9 in particular, which is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time, is probably one of my favorite sermons in the whole Book of Mormon. Like, Jacob really lays a lot of things down. I don't want to focus too much on some of the more peculiar points of doctrine, even though I do think they're worth bringing up. There is some stuff that I feel is unique to the church that we gain from 2 Nephi 9 that's worth mentioning. But there are some other pieces that have stood out to me more this week simply because of the nature of this podcast and also some of the things and experiences I've had just this week with, um, you know, with life in general. So before we get to that particular sermon, though, in 2 Nephi 9, is there anything in 6 through 8 that you want to touch upon, Derek? 
Yeah, I just wanted to go over just real quickly um, kind of what these Isaiah chapters are doing here. Because uh, yes. Jacob, and probably the best clue to that is in Second Nephi 6, verses 8 and 9, where uh, Jacob is saying, For behold, the Lord has shown me that those who were at Jerusalem from whence we came have been slain and carried away captive. So they left before the fall of Jerusalem, and now Jacob sees that it has happened by inspiration. Then Jacob says, Nevertheless, the Lord has shown unto me that they should return again. And he who has shown unto me that the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, should manifest himself unto them in the flesh, and after he should manifest himself, they should scourge him and crucify him according to the words of the angel who spake it unto me. So this outlines basically everything that he's taking from Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we've got um, in Second Nephi 7, where you're quoting from Isaiah 50, is God saying, look, I allowed this exile to happen because you were sick, uh, sinful, which there's some, there, there could be some problematic theology there, uh-huh. but we're not going to get into that. Then there's the servant song, which glorifies the coming Messiah, which brings hope. Um, this section of Isaiah is written to the exiles while they're in Babylon. All right. And so it gives them hope that, look, this is this explains why it happened. There's a coming Savior. There will be a restoration. Um, in This is why you should listen to the suffering servant. And this restoration will include Gentiles. And so those are that's what these Isaiah chapters here are doing, is they're saying, look, the, uh, Israel has gone into exile, but there's hope. There will be a Savior. There will be a restoration. Um of Israel, and then obviously that impacts the restoration in the nineteenth um, century as well, mm-hmm. where you've got another fulfillment of this prophecy of gathering in Gentiles, reuniting people, restoring peace, and that sets us up for um, talking about the Savior in chapter nine. Okay. So now I want to hear what you wanted to say. I actually had something I wanted to point out in Second Nephi chapter seven briefly. Oh. Okay. Um, I typically don't gain a lot from the Isaiah chapters, and it's partially why I'm dreading the Isaiah chapters coming up in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I just had an experience this week. Like uh, I, I started this thing a couple of days ago. I visited with a small group of young professional Christians in the Boston area. I just stumbled across them one day while uh, helping a friend prepare a talk in the basement of the Boston Public Library. And, uh, you know, they meet every Sunday night, at, or sorry, every Thursday night at 7.30 in the basement there where they just talk about the Bible. They call their little discussions Bible talk, and it's a bunch of people our age that just talk about it. And Ooh, really I should cool. go to this. Yeah, come Thursday, through. 7.30 p.m., yeah. Boston Public Library. Yeah, in the basement. Copley? Yeah, Copley. Um, only drawback, in my opinion, is that it's really short. Like, they only meet for, like, 45 minutes. And I'm like, no, let's crack these open. Let's, like, really explore mm-hmm. these scriptures a little bit. But, um... But anyway, it's fun and it's great to just, you know, meet with other, particularly young people of other faiths who are Christian and, you know, value this stuff the way that we do. It's really cool. But uh, anyway, we, on this past Thursday night, spent our time discussing the parable of the prodigal son. And we spent a lot of time discussing the sins of the different sons and how we exhibit those sins in ourselves. The younger son who demanded his inheritance and bounced, he obviously had pride issues as did the other son but those those pride issues were pretty obvious from the get-go he wanted to do as he pleased using that which he wasn't entitled to but felt he was entitled to nonetheless um second nephi 7 verse 10 
has Isaiah asking if any who fear and obey the Lord walk in darkness. Obviously, the answer is no. Um, but like he goes on to describe what are in essence the sins of the younger son in verse 11. And I'll just go ahead and read that real quick. Behold, all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in this and and in the sparks which ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. We know what the fate of the younger prodigal, what the fate of the prodigal son is, when he decided to walk by his own light, to walk by you know, the light of his own fire. He lied down in sorrow. Like, in fact, he was eating, you know, husks and stuff with pigs. He was indeed in sorrow. So, like, the, the message here is one that we are actually going to get to in chapter 9, which is to be learned is good if we hearken unto the counsels of God, as you said at the beginning of the show, Derek. Anyone who tries to walk by their own light over the Lord's is doomed to sorrow. And I think that's the point Isaiah was trying to get to us here, and I think that definitely informs some of what Jacob is going to uh, teach us in Second Nephi chapter 9. I don't think there's anything else I have before Second Nephi yeah. 9. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. So let's go ahead and move on to Second Nephi chapter 9 because it's quite the sermon. I personally love the themes in chapter 9 because they reinforce themes of uh, Christ being the ultimate judge and also of equality, and I don't believe that to be a coincidence. I... Um, like on our page this week, we posted a bunch of scriptures that alluded to equality, and maybe that just made me more privy to what uh, Jacob had to teach about it. But um, I really wanted to talk about some of these scriptures that mention it. There is one in Second Nephi chapter nine, verse uh, twenty-one, and you know we could really have made that list longer if we included the Second Nephi nine references or anything else that made reference to who salvation is for and who Christ's salvation is for. So the scripture says, and he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, and the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, who, who belong to the family of Adam. The one stipulation that Jacob lists there is that we hearken to his voice. He makes it clear in this verse 24, in verse 24 when he says, those who don't repent and believe on him, believe in his name, and be baptized and endure to the end, they must be damned. So the qualifier, the only qualifier for those, for anybody who wants salvation is simply to hearken to the voice of Christ. Also, this chapter is going to be a beautiful invitation for all to receive the grace of Christ, that cross-reference to one of those verses uh, that we quoted earlier on our page. I'm just going to move to verse 50 real quick, near the end of this chapter and this is just a this is just a beautiful invitation I'm, I'm wondering if there's some kind of further revelatory things to be gained from the imagery that's used here maybe you can help with that Derek because I've seen the scripture in Isaiah before but mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to read it it reads come my brethren everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters and he that hath no money come buy and eat yea come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Every socialism. So yes, socialism. There you go. <laughs> so everyone that thirsts is invited. And this is reinforced in 2 Nephi 26:25. Behold, doth he cry unto any saying, depart from me? Behold, I say unto you nay, but he saith, 
Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth. Buy milk and honey without money and without price. And just a few more verses after that is the famous verse 33. He inviteth them all, black and white, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile. Jacob seems to be going out of his way to make sure we understand that God is no respecter of persons. And that's just such a powerful thing uh, to be reminded of this week, is that God, or rather that God's emphasis on equality is all over the scriptures. Like, Equality is one of the fundamental tenets of our faith. It is one of the fundamental tenets of the kingdom of heaven. We all have an equal opportunity to get into heaven in as much as we hearken unto the voice of Christ. And no matter what kind of identity you espouse, we have, you know, just in Second Nephi chapter nine, chapter 9 alone, we have two instances of Jacob letting us know that salvation is free for all who hearken to the voice of Christ. But anyway, Derek, do you have like, is there something more to be read into uh, verse 50 or the cross reference here, which is Isaiah 55? Well, one, it looks this, like? this part of Isaiah, like I said earlier, was written to the exiles to, to, to tide them over, to give them hope, to give them um, an expectation that there will be a restoration, that yeah. there's this future, like the things that you're going through right now. And we have to remember that these that this is this really makes sense for what the Nephites were going through at this time. They were going through some difficult times. Yeah. And they need to know that there's there will be restoration. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's kind of what's going on is imagining a, a a time of peace and prosperity, one where God is ruling, one where the Babylonians are no longer ruling in the case of what Isaiah is saying to the exiles. And that's kind of the uh the main thrust of that. Mm. Sweet. Thank you. All right. I got a couple more things, but does this uh, segue into anything you'd like to talk about, Derek? I just wanted to talk briefly about people have asked, like, wanting my opinion on, like, a demarcation between doctrine and policy and all of that oh, mess. Gosh. Are we going to get into that now? I just want to say we're going to be here all day. I just want to say one thing about that. One thing. Just one, one thing, yes, Derek. One all thing. right. And the one thing is, basically, I don't really mess with that because... For a lot of Latter-day Saints, they think of their religion in terms of the categories of doctrine and in policy. That's kind of what their religion is. But for me, I don't operate under those categories. I have two other categories that I use. The first one is narrative because so much of our scriptures are stories. Christianity is storied theology and historically embedded theology. Okay. And we've got stories that shape us and inform us and move our lives. And so much of what's in the Bible isn't and also the Book of Mormon, isn't just a random list of abstract things to believe or a random list of things to do. It's a stories. And I think that's important to when you have this mess around, well, what's doctrine and what's not and what's policy and what's not or what's official and what's not. I don't, I don't really mess with that because none of the people in the Bible did that. You don't see Paul debating, well, this is official or not or this is doctrine or not. He just told you truths that were very timely. And that gets into the second category. The first one was narrative. The second category is relationships. Mm -hmm. So much of religion for me is about relationships, relationships with God, relationships with others in the church, and relationships with outsiders. And a lot of that relationship has to do with covenant. And that's kind of my organizing principles. So I don't really worry about, oh, no, this church leader said something stupid one time. Is that doctrine or not? Like, no. I mean, that's not really what I worry about. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of, this helps us 
embed what what Jacob and the Nephites are going through and how they're using the narrative when he says remember like where is it in um chapter 9 verse 40 oh my beloved brethren give ear to my words remember the greatness of the holy one of Israel that's with the power of narrative it isn't just mm. some abstract doctrine it's mm -hmm. like we're going to change what we're doing daily because of these stories that we are retelling and mm -hmm. we're remembering. Mm. And I think that solves the problem of like, well, there's Joseph Fielding Smith had this racist quote. Was it doctrine or not? I mean, that's no, I mean, it's first of all, it's false doctrine and somehow false doctrine got into the manual. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't have a lot of anxiety over, over like, whether everything someone says over the pulpit is doctrine or whether everything even in the scriptures is doctrine. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's probably too, I shouldn't say much more about that because I only said I would say one thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to match that then by only saying one thing because um, my, my whole thing is that if the church has set the definition for official doctrine and they have, I want to be able to hold them accountable to that. For example, according to the church's definition of official doctrine, the current policies affecting LGBTQ folks are doctrinally and therefore morally indefensible. That differentiation that church makes, that the church itself makes, can be used to our advantage in our advocacy. We can challenge anyone who preaches false doctrine with the church's own definition and say confidently that this is not doctrine and is therefore not from God, and I am therefore not beholden to it. It's a very simple way for us to resist institutionally oppressive dogmas while affirming our queer siblings. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I hear what you're saying too, though, Derek. It's a very I powerful thing. I think the ultimate effect is the same. or the Yes, I agree with you. Doing. I agree with you. Um, but part of my question is like, I don't want people to say, "Oh, look, this this prophet said something racist." Therefore, the truth, then the, therefore the ch church is false, or something like that. Because yeah, that's part of our narrative. We've got uh -huh. people struggling that revelation isn't an exact science; that it requires you to do your homework first. There's just so many of these variables that uh, inspiration isn't magic. It's not some magical ability. Uh -huh. And I think that conception is what leads people to think that whatever a church leader says is doctrine. Right. And and we can't contradict that or we can't um uh but here's here's the other thing is part of the challenge is some of the stuff that we thought was official doctrine later we realize oops that was wrong. Right. So that's my problem with drawing that line of saying, Oh, here's the official. I mean like uh -huh. even some of that stuff we thought was official is not mm -hmm. true. Right. And stuff that that a lot of members now think is official doctrine isn't true. Yes. We've put too much into the truth cart, as uh, Patrick Mason has said. I agree with you. And my whole point, I suppose, is that our quote-unquote official doctrine is only in the scriptures. Like, all of it has been canonized in the scriptures. So basically, everything that comes forth over the pulpit, none of that is doctrine until we follow the law of common consent, which says, present it before the body of the people and we vote on it. Like, nothing is doctrine in that sense, like nothing that's said over the pulpit is doctrine until that happens. Yeah, but there's there's some challenges for me with that. Uh, for there's things in the scriptures that aren't true, right? Like the the toleration of slavery. That's wrong. I'm not going to say that. Yes, even though both testaments uh, permit slavery, I'm just going to say, whoops, that's wrong. But right. also context, you know what I'm saying? And like then we have to take also that with context. Heavenly Mother. Heavenly Mother is not mentioned anywhere in scriptures. And I don't want to deprive 
people of having Heavenly Mother as part of doctrine because in a way that is a very pro-feminist move to take and you can take it that way. And like, yeah, it's not in our scriptures, literally. Um, right. So there's no, to me, there's no consistent definition of official doctrine that, that is really satisfying because there's going to be exceptions here and there. There's going to be contextual things here and there. And so that's maybe we've talked about that too much. So <laughs> why you got to start these conversations, Derek? Well, you we can delete them up. later. I'm not going to, I'm not going to delete it. This is good stuff. Okay. Um, this does segue into something I uh, would like to talk about that happens in second Nephi nine forty one. See while we're talking about doctrine and all that stuff, I think it's worth mentioning something that is uh, written in verse 41, which basically says that the Holy one of Israel is the keeper of the gate. In our society and in our church, it's really good to remember that um, that Christ is the gatekeeper and he employeth no servant there, as it says in verse 41. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate, for he cannot be, bece- be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. We are accountable to no one but Christ at the end of the day. Nephi understood that when his family was on the verge of starving, but his family, including the prophet, wavered. That line about there not being a servant keeping the gate says to me that if the Lord actually does ask us if we followed the prophet at the day of judgment, the the correct answer is not going to be to a fault. Like as I said last week or two weeks ago, our loyalty should always be to Christ first because that's what's going to matter at the end of the day and on judgment day. Ultimate judgment won't be delegated to anyone. It's not going to be delegated to whoever was the prophet when we were alive. It's not going to be delegated to anybody neither will the measuring of mercy be delegated to anybody so before we are loyal to an institution before we're loyal to a prophet before we're loyal to anybody like our loyalty should always be to christ first and that's what we're going to be judged on yes definitely um a lot of people set up our human leaders with these unrealistic expectations and that actually sets them up for their faith to fail later. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not just about, about us being progressive, wanting to sneak things in. It's about us having care, um, for people's faith. And we want them, we want it to be resilient and mature and able to withstand every little thing that could come up. Yeah. And yeah, some of our, our leaders are, have said dumb things and they're going to say dumb things. That's yep. part of our narrative. Part of it. Um, but focusing on Christ, I think, is the, the key, right? Yeah. And you brought that out so brilliantly. One thing about Christ I want to talk about goes back to Second uh, Nephi 9, verse 6. For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great creator there must needs be a power of resurrection i love this idea of a power of resurrection because it is one of the clearest um footholds for lgbtq theology because i think that queer theology is a resurrection theology people say well there's no hope or there's no miracle there's no change we're stuck with this i'm like no you know so many times Paul made a big deal about the resurrection to make some other point. In some of his greetings, he said, I am, you know, this this is the power of, uh, this, I, you know, I've been called by the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That should be transgressive and surprising. And people say, well, it's, oh, it's a, the church is never going to change. That's like saying, well, we're never going to rise from the dead. 
yeah, it looks impossible. Oh, you know, that's so hilarious because let's go back to John chapter 11. This is the famous story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus um, in Bethany. And his sisters were there and, and mourning Lazarus's death. And Jesus comes up and says, roll the stone away. And Martha says, no, 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 wait. Lazarus, by now, it's been four days, he's going to stink. And I thought to myself, here you have the master of the universe, the master over life and death, mm -hmm. telling you to take the stone away, and you're responding to him with biology. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, know, you know that dead people stay... The ancient world, you don't need modern science to tell you that dead people stay dead. People mm -hmm. in the ancient world knew dead people stayed dead. Mm -hmm. And... Jesus is surprising Martha and everyone else by raising him from the dead. I mean, that's the Christ that I know will raise us as a church from the, from the deadness of homophobia. Mm -hmm. People say, well, it's not possible. Or people say to queer people, they, they try to use biology against us. Right. Right? Like, oh, Adam and Eve and, and anatomy and like... <laughs> Look, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about unnatural, raising people from the dead is unnatural. Yeah. It's a miracle. I think the love between a man and a man or a woman and a woman or any gender and any gender, that is a miracle. Mm -hmm. It may transcend your small little tomb of what you think natural should be, but it's still a miracle. Right. And I think that's the power of the resurrection here. Something that comes in and boldly rearranges everything ever you thought. That's what we as queer people need in the church. The power of resurrection mm -hmm. is on, on, on the move and mm -hmm. on the loose. And I think that's, that's how I know that we're not going to be stuck in this tomb of homophobia forever. There will be change in the church. I really like that, uh, that thing you pointed out where you're just like, and Mary's like, don't move the stone. He smells. And I'm just like, who are you to tell the master of the universe? I use I use biology, chemistry, physics. <laughs> I used all of that to create this universe, and you're going to tell me how biology works? Yeah. Like how? How? I don't know what the adjective is, but how arrogant? Prideful, how arrogant yeah, yeah. do humans have to be to suppose that we get to tell God what He will and will not do? It's like the arrogance of white people explaining racism to black people. Ooh! Say it, Derek. Say <laughs> yeah. it, Derek. Yes. Just, this is, it's profoundly, profoundly arrogant. Anytime I hear a straight Latter-day Saint say that this is never going to change, and I'm just like, do you, you realize you're a Christian, right? You realize you are part of a religion that teaches that we believe in a God who was, usually, who was literally spawned by a, another god and a mortal mother was raised in Jerusalem, exiled, came back, began a ministry, had 12 men who were his best friends, was brown-skinned, uh, made wine from water, healed the sick, raised the dead, died himself, raised himself from the dead, and ascended into heaven in front of a bunch of witnesses. Like, you are going to tell me in that religion that you believe in that God cannot find a way for queer folks to have the same blessings as you? Like, who are you? Who are you as a Christian to tell us what God will and will not do? Like, it really boggles my mind the things that Christians themselves will say are impossible despite us worshiping a God who literally defied what we thought was possible. That was yeah. basically the whole career of the ministry of Jesus was defying convention. Yeah. So, 
I'm anxiously awaiting that day where he does it yet again and shows us the place that uh, queer folks have at the table or that they've created themselves at, you know, at the table that he is just going to reveal to us. There are going to be a lot of Christian saints who are going to be beside themselves, but hopefully have the humility to be like, my God is an awesome God. My Christ is one that boldly reaffirms that the impossible can be possible. And I have a, I have a theory. Yay, theories from Derek. We need, I this need is like not a, a this, is, this is not a very happy theory, though. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, we're going to get LGBT equality in the church. Yeah. I still think that whenever that revelation happens, things are going to be much better for uh, gay white men in the church. But we're still going to be dealing with racism 40 years after whatever this revelation that fixes the gay thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think that the progress that the that especially white gay people and white gay men will make in the church will eclipse that of um, our, our siblings of color, mm. which is totally not fair. But I think that the slope of that line is, is much more inclined and, and we will get over that problem a lot faster. I think there's just something so insidious about racism and it, it just infests everything. Sadly, I think we're going to be dealing with that long after things are fixed for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, this somewhat leads into the last thing I wanted to discuss, which is in Second Nephi chapter 9, verse 40. We see something here that we saw in First Nephi 16, 1 through 3. I should preface it by saying that Jacob just pronounced woes on all kinds of sinners. He pronounced woes on the rich, the willfully ignorant, the liar, the murderer, the sexually deviant, etc. He's talking to sinners, basically. Verse 40, he says, Do not say that I have spoken hard things against you, for if ye do, ye have spoke ye will revile against the truth, for I have spoken the words of your maker. I know that the words of truth are hard against all uncleanness, but the righteous fear them not, for they love the truth and are not shaken. Close quote. Now, last time we read these words, this was in 1 Nephi chapter 16. We were talking about the sin of racism, and we could also talk about the sins of homophobia, sexism, and all other kinds mm-hmm. of isms and phobias. But we see it here, though, and, and we must not allow our hurt feelings or pride to get in the way of us doing better. Like We talked about this more at length in that episode where we discuss uh, Nephi's broken bow, among other things. But if we find ourselves like this is... Like in summary, we can just say, if we find ourselves speaking or acting in a bigoted way and someone calls us out, we don't defend our bigotry, we receive the truth, and we do better. Like that's something that Nephi and Jacob have in common, is that they tell us that the truth is more important than our feelings. Now another thing they both did was they validated the feelings of the person who did the offense. Like they said, they know the words are truth or hard, or I know that I spoke hard things. But they do that while acknowledging that while, we, while what we may say as members of marginalized groups, while we, what we may say may hurt the feelings of the privileged, that still doesn't excuse any future behavior or give you a right to center yourself in any narratives. Like don't make it about your feelings and don't deny what you have to do to be better. So like I thought about this a lot when I went back to this conversation or back to this story of what happened at the black immigrant panel. You know, what I really would have liked to see happen is we read all these awful questions and we make fun of them. Like they're anonymous. So, you know, no one's got to take credit for them or anything. But people need to know that these are awful, hurtful and very ignorant questions. 
And everybody in the room needs to know that. You know, that's what that's kind of what Paul did when Peter almost caused a schism mm-hmm. in the church back in Galatians 2. Like, he called Peter out in front of everybody. He made this known that this is not okay. He saw racism happen in front of everybody, so he's got to call it out in front of everybody. Like, that's just, yeah, I think and that's, that's a biblical principle. That is what bugs me about this manual quote mistake again because mm-hmm. the the response should be bigger than the error because yes. there's going to be people who who maybe don't have internet access or people who only use the manual who people don't hear the, the message because um, that manual got sent out but there's nothing read over the pulpit there's no, like how are people going to hear that that you shouldn't use the manual yeah unless the that voice is as big as the manual and you should say no we're going to recall all the manuals and we're going to reprint them because yeah. the because black people are important Yep. yep. That's what we should have done. Yep. And we're not doing that. And that's why I love, you know, saying, oh, just just pretend that that isn't there. I mean, that is, that's not okay because that quote is dangerous, false doctrine. Right. It is false doctrine. It should not be in our stuff. Mm-hmm. It needs to be gone. And I, so many New Testament documents like the pastorals, first, second, first and second Timothy and Titus, very strong against you know finding the false doctrine, correcting it, and not letting it thrive. Yeah. Same thing with Jude and Second Peter. There's a lot of about uh, false doctrine and apostasy there of like condemning it and exposing it and making sure it's gone. But like you, probably the biggest example here it would be Galatians because that's also a false doctrine issue. Yeah, and yeah. Paul says at the very beginning in in chapter one, anyone who preaches a gospel other than the one that I've that you've received is condemned to hell. Mm-mm. Yes. And then, and in context, of course, that was the Galatian issue, is that the gospel that he was preaching was a gospel of the equality of all ethnicities. Yeah. And yeah. so it is absolutely valid. It's not even a stretch to say that what we learn from the narrative of Galatians should say, no, you've got to get rid of that quote from the manual. Mm-hmm. Not just pretend, you know, tell people to, to avoid it. Because no problem as big as racism or white supremacy goes away by just ignoring it. Yeah. Like. Yeah. According to. And, and that's why I, I look at this doctrine issue more in the practical because, yes, there's there's an issue around doctrine in Galatians. But it's not about an abstract thing. It's how you live together. It's how mm. you treat one another. Yes. And that's why where I go to the whole narrative and relationships piece. Because, yeah. yes, we can use the word doctrine. But I think a lot of people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have this really funny view. It's like doctrine is somehow this untouchable, abstract category of truths that, that uh, you know, are fixed. In, and I'm like, yeah, but but that's not how... The, the issue in the Galatian, Galatia wasn't like, oh, what's this standardized doctrine? Because they didn't actually have a standardized body no, of doctrine. They didn't, they didn't have any manuals in the New Testament. They didn't have any of that stuff that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about teaching the truth for that moment that they needed to hear. And if you want to call that doctrine, then yeah, you can. But it, it, there's just this misleading impression about uh, doctrine is really just a Latin word that means teachings. That's mm-hmm. all it is. It doesn't have any more weight than that. Mm-hmm. I think people put a lot of weight on that word um, when it when that's not even how they organized it back then. They didn't have a fixed body of doctrine that everyone agreed on. They didn't have a, um, any manuals. They didn't have yeah. So that's kind of really helpful for how we respond to actual events that interfere with our relationships. Mm. Yes, sir. 
All right. I think that's all I had to say about Second Nephi. Excellent. That's all I got to say about Second Nephi as well. So before we wrap up, I uh, just want to let you guys know about another podcast in the Dialogue Podcast Network here. This is uh, Gospel Tangents, which explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. They talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets and presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. You know, speaking of gospel tangents, did you know that um, you love the gospel and you're a really tangent? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you should why, tell them that and why? be a guest on the Why? <laughs> because uh, my, Why? <laughs> Oh my gosh, Derek. I was like, where's Derek about to go with this? Is this about to be a joke? <laughs> yes. Ah, oh, it's terrible. Freaking terrible. I'm writing that down, but it's terrible. Derek, we got any housekeeping items? Well, you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, you can send us stuff. I would like to really, uh, maybe we should make a post on social media saying comment with where you first heard about us. Mm. So um, go on go on social media, find that post, and tell us where did you first hear about us and, and what was that like? Yeah, what was that like? What did that do for you? Yeah, I mean, like, how did you, because I'm just real curious about how people hear about us, how we can better promote this so that we can get these messages out there and, and really invigorate people's lives with the power of the resurrection give them hope and endurance and resilience in the face of all sorts of stuff and also not all y'all filled out the survey so you know there's like 400 of y'all 400 some of y'all out there that like like the facebook page or whatever and not all y'all filled out the survey so we don't know how all y'all heard about us but yeah that, that that'd be good to know anything else Derek? nope that's it all right then, uh, wait, we can tell them to tune in to us on Facebook Live next week at the oh, yeah. uh, at the at conference. The, uh, yeah, at the Black LDS Legacy Conference. If you're not in the DMV and you can't pull up to the uh, D.C. Visitor Center next Saturday to enjoy the conference with us, the event will be streamed live on Facebook Live. I can't tell you exactly what time we're going to be on. We have not received the program yet, but... Uh, yeah, the event will be streamed live, and you'll be able to tune in to our panel as well as the uh, different keynote addresses that will be happening and the other panels that will be occurring that weekend. It will be a very spiritually enriching day, and we hope if you can't pull up to the to the uh, D.C. Visitor Center, you can at least join us via Facebook Live to uh, be part of the conversation. Yeah, and this is important because this is something that you could tune into to learn how to be a better accomplice to black saints. Yeah, definitely. And also, if you don't know, Beyond the Block basically exists because of this conference. Like after attending this conference, we really were brainstorming ways that we could continue to have a space, an unregimented one to discuss uh, these particular issues and also have a place where we can embolden others to claim a space for themselves at the table and encourage others to do the same. Like Beyond the Block came as a direct result of our attendance at this conference. So we really hope you guys understand the power that this conference has to enhance your testimony as well as your advocacy. And that's my, that's the best plan yeah, I can thanks. offer. All right. We'll see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye.